Hello and welcome to the Labor of Love podcast. I'm Nari Baker. I'm a Korean transracial adoptee and a mother based on Coast Salish land, otherwise known as the Seattle area. And I'm Robin Park, a Korean transracial adoptee and a therapist living on unceded Tongva, Chumash, and Keech land, otherwise known as the Los Angeles area. We are so excited to be here today with Shannon Gibney, an award-winning author who has written a huge range of books, from novels to anthologies and picture books, as well as essays, articles, and think pieces for numerous publications. She is a professor of English at Minneapolis College, a writing teacher, mother of three, and a multiracial, transracial domestic adoptee. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me. It's just a delight to be here. Thank you. We're just so excited to dive in. There's so much to cover. You've done so much work for our community. Everything you've done has just been so expansive and inspiring and so inclusive. And we just really appreciate you being here. You wrote a very beautiful piece called The Sixth Finger for the groundbreaking anthology Parenting as Adoptees back in 2012. When your first child, your son Boise, was very young, you were no stranger to the transracial adoptee community. What was it like to add your voice to this very specific topic, a book which was the first of its kind? Was it a new experience connecting with other adoptees around parenting or maybe part of a larger conversation you are already having in community? Yeah, no, that book, I think, was a watershed for a a lot of people in our community. I remember going to the book launch at the Loft Literary Center here in Minneapolis for that. And it was packed. Adoptees coming from, you know, even neighboring states like Wisconsin. And because talking about adoption intergenerationally, unfortunately, is something that we still don't do. And that can make people feel very lonely, very isolated, very confused sometimes. And so I think projects like Parenting as Adoptees, like that book, that anthology, really help people to see like, oh, okay, yes, I'm, I'm not the only one that is struggling with these feelings that are, are suddenly being triggered by my four-year-old's response to X, Y, Z, you know, these feelings of loss, ambiguous loss, for example. I don't quite know what to do with them or, or what they mean. or And to really recognize that those experiences and those feelings are valid and and that they have a place, you know, <laughs> they have a place that can that can be processed. And for folks who choose to parent and to become caregivers, like it is one of the most life changing experiences of our lives. But then on top of that, to come at it from the perspective, the experience, the subject position of, of being an adoptee, it's just another thing altogether. Here in Minnesota, <laughs> it's informally informally known among transracial adoptees as the land of 10,000 Korean adoptees because there's more Korean adoptees here than in uh, places like uh, Scandinavia because of the you know sort of child welfare apparatus, the Lutheran social services, Catholic social services of the world that are based largely uh, in Minnesota brought a lot of those folks here. So I consider myself very fortunate that I have had friends and colleagues who have and are parenting alongside me who are also adoptees. There's just such a relief There's when you don't feel like you have to explain everything. Context is everything. You know, that's why it's such a relief when adoptees get in a room with each other. 
You know, I always say that's this something ineffable, but magical, you know, happens where it's just like, oh my God, I don't have to try to make my edges softer. I don't have to worry that somebody's not going to understand a specific term or tone that I use when I'm talking about the adoption triad or something. I can talk about race. (laughs) You know, there's also that insider thing that happens when BIPOC people get together, which does not mean we don't have our own tensions and our own biases and racial and cultural issues and stereotypes to work out about each other because we do. But it's still, and yet for me, and I would have to say all the transracial adoptees I know, it's much easier to talk about these things with adoptees of color than with white adoptees. So I I do feel very lucky that as I was starting to have kids, I did have this community of transracially adopted people, mostly women, mostly Korean adoptees, but not all. There's some Black adoptees too that we could share stories with and process with and information. Yeah, I I just want to add that it just feels, even being in conversation with you and with Nari today, it just, like you said, it feels... Like we can ah, just kind of take a breath and even when we're separated by all these miles, feel each other on these these vibes. And I just want to acknowledge that really your contributions as well as others, you know, in the land of gazillion adoptees, which I also grew up in and was a part of, but really put a place for us at the table in this publication. You know, I mean, at least for me, it was the first of its kind to be aware that adoptees as parents were making this kind of contribution to our community and that so much of our narrative and adoption has been around adoptive parents seeing us as children or we don't really ever grow up and now we are grown as adults and we are having children and that this publication really put us at the table and really also got to share our own expertise and experiences, right? That we oftentimes up until then, I felt like didn't really have the the outlet or the opportunity. So I just want to, you know, thank you as well as others, you know, who really put together this really seminal piece. But, you know, on that note, maybe lean into a part of the piece that you beautifully wrote, you know, and just wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of the part that you wrote um, and your contribution that was specifically as mentioned around your son. Yeah. So um, the piece that I wrote in Parenting as Adoptees was called The Sixth Finger. In that piece, it's it's just a short essay. I'm making an argument, which I, I later kind of explicate in this essay that was just published last year called uh, A Case for the Kinship of Loss kinship between transracial adoptees. And so this is 10 years before that came out. I was really, these ideas in that essay really starting to percolate with the six finger essay, which is that basically negative space, what we have lost can be constitutive. I'm saying that word wrong, but it can be, it can, what we have lost can actually be something that is present. It's a presence that can actually bind us And so people like transracial adoptees that have had this, I mean, some people would call it primal loss, right? The loss of the mother, the first, the first mother, the biological, however you want to say it, the loss of birth father, the birth family, the home culture, home community, home family, plenty of folks, home language. There is something in that, that I argue through this kinship of loss that goes beyond language it goes 
I would say deeply into the structures of feeling because it was formulated before we had language, (laughs) really, you know? Um, And so I, I think with the birth of my son, it was my first child and he was born with a six finger, his six fingers, one on each hand and his six fingers were not, he couldn't use them. They had bone and skin. So they, but they were more than skin tags. But the interesting thing about them for me was that his father had them too when he was born and his father's Liberian. And so his fathers were taken off shortly, shortly after birth. His father felt strongly that, that he wanted Boise six fingers to be let to be taken off too because of the social stigma and, and also because they were not functional. And so that's what we did when he was about one. But what was interesting to me about it I think as a writer, I started to see, you know, his father has these lines right on the side of his each hand where the fingers used to be. And so my son had that same scar, a little bit less because it was done years later. And of course, surgeries developed, et cetera. But still, there was a marker of that loss. That marker of loss, that scar bound them together to in different parts of the same story. As an adoptee, I th- I just felt that very strongly. That was kind of like the guiding metaphor for this essay. And this is just a short piece of it. We, to hope to reimagine the story of kinship as also a story of loss. Can we have the strength, the imagination to envision loss as something essentially constituted, which fundamentally makes connections between people and therefore families? For adoptees who also find ourselves parents, this may be the necessarily nuanced narrative we have been looking for since we were children ourselves. Thank you so much for reading that, Shannon. It hits on such a deep level as a fellow adoptee. And I think that one reason why transracial adoptees are drawn to each other, the unspeakable bond that we share that's beyond the structure of words and into the structure of feelings is that space of loss you know, that you so beautifully speak to. Not only have we lost kinship through the adoption process, but we have a kinship to loss itself. And in that, we we share that with each other. And I'm just so curious now, you know, you reading that out loud, you know, a decade later, and I know, and we're, we will talk a little bit more in depth later in the interview that you have experienced other major losses in your life. And just wondering about how do you feel about the piece that you that you wrote? You know, when Boise was so little, now you've had three children. And how has your perspective changed on your kinship with loss and your relationship maybe with your idea of biofamily now that you've experienced it in this new way with your children and maybe each child individually as well? Yeah, I do think that this idea of the kinship of loss has only deepened in the time since my son was so young when I wrote the piece. We all know these dominant narratives about family and family formation, building families, all this stuff, right? There's this whole, in in adoption, right? There's this whole like forever family, you know, thing. and, And it's just not true for better and for worse and for neutral and whatever. I mean, we know nothing is permanent (laughs) in life, in the universe, and and that includes families. And so that also means that there is loss. There is loss. 
in every single family. And we in American culture spend a lot of time and energy and money trying to not face that fact. I mean, I would say the whole industry of adoption is about that as well, creating these storylines and institutions, procedures, whatever, that make it seem like these things are permanent, right? Like, and that loss is not something that can't be quote unquote overcome. I had my son, we'll talk about this later, but, and then I had my first daughter who was a stillbirth at 41 and a half weeks. Later, when I talked to other women who were older than I, one or two generations older than I, you know, it was, it was, it was common in those times for people to say, well, you, you know, you can have another. And nobody said that to me, thank God. <laughs> we live in a more enlightened time <laughs> than, than that. But the sent- I feel deeply, actually, that the sentiment there is very similar to the sentiment in adoption of, well, you have a great family now. You were adopted. It's great. Just get over it. Whatever it is, right? Like whatever, like your issues with race and racism, your issues with being the only Black person in your family, <laughs> your issue with being the only Asian American person in your family, your issues with not being able to speak Korean issues with like not knowing your health history, your, <laughs> all this stuff, right? It's just sort of like, well, that's not really a loss. You can't tell me what I know intrinsically in my body, in my own experience. Just like you can't tell me that just because my baby never was like born, never took a breath outside of my body, that that wasn't a huge loss to me. No one can tell me that. Ever. So I think being an adoptee first, being an adopted child, and then having grown into being an adoptee who's a mother, it prepared me. There's, there's a kind of laid bare clarity around it. And when Kalia and I decided, Kyle Kalia Yang is my marvelous, brilliant co-editor for this anthology, What God is Honored Here, which is writings on miscarriage and infant loss by and for Native women and women of color. The first book of its kind, 22 women writing about our losses in this area. I mean, you know, we, uh, it was, I think, you know, six years after I had lost my daughter that we were ready, you know, um, and that would have been seven or eight years for her, I think, after she lost hers. You know, so these things take time. Did I answer your question? (laughs) Like, I'm just not, I'm just not sure that I did. You, but (laughs) you are exactly where you need to be right now. And, and I just, I'm so moved to hear the ways that you name and acknowledge loss in such a profound and, you know, deep in our DNA. It's it's part of our experience and the way that we move through this world. And it really touches the heartstrings so deeply as you share about what that has been like for you as an adoptee, also as a mother, 
as a parent. And and I, I think you lead into this conversation around loss and, and the way in which it's often silenced and how, you know, just talking about whether it's stillbirth, whether it's, you know, miscarriage or, or infant and child death. It's just, it's so hard for our society to talk about that or to even acknowledge it. And yet even as adoptees, it hits I think even it cuts us even deeper in so many ways, but oftentimes we still don't talk about it in our community. And I think that's why your publication that you co-created was just so incredible, again, is also, and also such a gift to our, our community. I'm just wondering, again, what that was like for you to really share publicly your story and at that point being able to process and share what that experience was like for you, but also to read the other, you know, 22 contributors and, you know, the courage and and the beautiful, painful experiences that they've had to, they they contributed, right? And and they went through. What was that like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that was really why Kali and I decided to do this project together is that we, we knew and on some unspoken level that we could not do this project on our own. We had to have each other to get through it. We also always say, this was not a book that either of us ever wanted to write. I hope that none of my friends would ever have to go through this experience. Many have, unfortunately, but because, of course, 20 to 25% of all women will have a miscarriage or infant loss. So it's quite common, therefore, can become even more devastating that we don't talk about it. Another trauma on top of that initial trauma is the silence. So what silence can do. It was a lot to process. It was a lot to hold. But when you feel called to do the work that you do, it still can be exhausting. It still can be frustrating and all this other stuff that work can be. But there's a way in which it's also such a gift because you're like in the zone, you know, like you're like, okay, this is, this is, there's nothing else that I could be doing right now or that I should be doing or whatever, because this is what I'm here to do. This is this is what I came here to do. Once you have that kind of work and once you have that orientation, you know it. I mean, that's how I feel about all my writing, but particularly the really hard stuff, it becomes even clearer that it's like, yeah, this is really difficult, but that's also what makes it so transformative. And so, for instance, all these women that were so courageous to share their stories and craft them as well. In one way or another, they're all our sisters now. We will say sisters in loss, this particular kind of loss. This project and projects like it become a template for how to process loss in a way that will build community instead of further separate us. And so that's what happened. I mean, we were very lucky what God is Honored Here is published by University of Minnesota Press, which is a very supportive press of both my work and Kalia's work. And they saw instantly the power and importance of this, this book. And they flew out, you know, a third to a half of our contributors for book launch events. And so we got to actually meet a lot of them, working with them also through the editorial process, got to know them as well. That's powerful. There really isn't anything like working with other people <laughs> to get to know them in a way, particularly with like this kind of like sort of like deep 
emotional, psychological, creative, narrative work. So that was also very transformative, even through the difficulty. And I mean, I'm not going to lie. There were days when it was like, okay, I can't read this right now, or I read this later. Um, And people will say that about the book too. You know, they will say, okay, I can read one and then I have to go walk my dog. Okay, that's fine. That's what it's for. Um, You know, I'm sitting here a year out from a miscarriage that I experienced myself. And as you are describing this book, which I also am getting, you know, the the courage to bring myself to read where I'm at a point where I can absorb others and, and just, I think, hear stories that will touch deep notes of sadness, but also, like you said, be really transformative and bring us in a collective of sisters in loss, but also to just really feel that, you know, you're not alone. And this is, is what I'm really feeling so comforted by that there's this incredible, powerful publication out there and, and stories and wisdom and so much to be shared and to, to continue to be in conversation about. So I just want to thank you for having the strength and the courage and the time to feel so called to contribute that to our collective. So um, I just wanted to name that right now. Thank you, Robin. I mean, I, you know, one of my friends who's a writer said, it will be passed down from hand to hand. You know, that's how this book is going to make its way. And Kalia will say, she has this beautiful image, like, we're trying to start a fire in a damp forest. People don't don't necessarily want to talk about it. But sometimes it's like, to me, it's good enough just to know it's there. Like whether or not someone has experienced a loss like yourself, and they ever open it or not, just the fact that it exists, and that I know that it gives you some comfort knowing that that's enough. Because I, I do feel like as writers and artists, that's our job is to create more space where there's not space for conversations, connections, but really recognition. If there's like a, an original sin of transracial adoption, that would be it, right? That we cannot recognize ourselves in our families, that we cannot recognize ourselves in our communities, that we cannot recognize ourselves in the literature. That's what all my work is about, is creating these spaces of recognition for folks who otherwise we don't have it. And you can't be a fully functional individual without that. You just can't. I don't care what anybody says you can't. That I know. Thank you so much for just the courage that it takes to bring these areas, topics, experiences, and traumas and deep feelings to the surface. And I think that something you touched on earlier, it was just so powerful about the parallels between the way that talks of adoption and infant loss and miscarriage especially adoption has just been so sanitized and siloed. It is family loss, just as miscarriage and infant loss is also family loss. So bringing these connections to light so that our experiences as adoptees or as bereaved parents gets that wider field where people are making these connections, you know, just on the level of 
what you keep referring to, which I am finding so powerful is this body knowing there, like Robin was saying in our DNA, there, there's this map of loss on a cellular level, you know, and all the experiences, subsequent experiences, there are rivers and tributaries that they follow because we have that imprinted inside of us. But when you really explicitly bring that to light, yeah, you can lay them kind of on top of each other and you can see that there's so many, so many parallels and crossovers and places where they match and touch. It just strengthens our community and it adds so much power and, and wisdom to this, the broader narrative. So I really, I really thank you for that. And, and I also feel like what God is honored here too, I think the tagline is women of color. And so being an adoptee in that space, I think takes courage for a lot of people and being a really powerful presence of color only spaces, especially women of color and finding that sisterhood. And then also being that person for adoptees who maybe aren't there yet to find themselves in that space, I think is just so important. So I just want to thank you for all of those things. Well, I appreciate you both. We're in our work and we're, we're doing it up close and personal because that's how, that's the only way it, it can be done. There are these other contexts and connections and insights that you don't necessarily see when you're that that close to it, you know, and I consider myself a mid-career writer. I'm 47. You know, I always say that, you know, I've been writing since I was six, not to say that the writing I was doing when I was six was any good, but still I have been writing for quite some time. What's interesting is that once you start to have a body of work, some of the themes and ideas in it, you yourself are conscious of, but nothing belongs to us, right? I mean, it's, I always feel weird when I start you know, talking about the creative process because I, you know, oh, mystical crystals, you know, or whatever. But, you know, I I do feel like there's something, whether you call it God, whether you call it creative energy, you know, whether, whatever it is, when you are an artist, when you are creating something, whatever your genre might be, whatever your discipline might be, you are hooking into something larger than yourself, than your, your own story. And anyone who does it has some intimation of this, at least a little. You don't control how it comes out exactly. To me, I always tell my writing students, like, our job is to hone our writing skills to such a level that we can best translate whatever is coming out of that creative space so that it hits readers in a certain way so as they can see something about what it means to be a human being here and now that maybe they didn't see before. That's our job. So that's why, you know, somebody can read something of mine, for example, and see something in it that consciously I'm like, I, I didn't know I was doing that. And so hearing Nari, you talk about sort of like my emphasis on the body, you know, I do, I do identify as a, as a Buddhist too. Um, I'm a practicing Buddhist. And so, so much of that practice, as I understand it, is about healing the rift between mind and body. So to do that, you have to be in your body. You have to really. And those teachings are very clear that everything that you need to heal yourself and to end suffering is in your body. We just don't want to pay attention to it because we think it's not important or we think it's it's too much or whatever.
that extra piece um, when you're transracially adopted, that there's a fear around your own body. And you've been, I think about exile a lot, the uh, concept of exile, being exiled from birth country. But so much of it, I think, too, is kind of this psychic exile from our own bodies that it takes a lifetime to come back home. That's a, that's deep. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree with you. Woo, we're going deep today. Love it. <laughs> Loving it. Um, and it just, you know, I mean, these... These are these are uh, the stories of our lives, and but just so you know, richly textured, and and just so appreciative of holding this space and really going deep, and and you know, finding these connections and and bringing in, I think, the aspects of your writing. Um, you know, I I'm always reminded of a fourth grade writing conference I went to at St. Kate's that said the this uh, pen is mightier than the sword, and I just think so much of the power of of writing and the ways that you do that and slay, you know, every day and, and just all your publications. And in a previous conversation, you said, you know, that much of your writing, if it's not about your kids, it's for them, which is just absolutely beautiful. And you involve them in so much of what you do. And they involve um, themselves in so much of yeah. what I do as well. You know, we interrupting podcasts, for instance. And, but, you know, to be fair, they get dragged along to everything too. So we got to give them props. As well, they are good sports about a great many things that they have no control over as children are. And you have an incredible PR person, <laughs> which we've uh, <laughs> Boise already, yes. you know, at yes. the, the t- tender teenage uh, year almost, right? He's a, a tween, tween almost a teen. But, you know, can you share more about, you know, what it's been like for you and in, in all of these upcoming exciting pieces that you have coming up? We've heard about a picture book that I can't wait to get my hands on, a trilogy adventure, an anthology. What do we get to anticipate? It's been for, like for many people, a long ass pandemic. Excuse my French. But, you know, it's like I've been backed up, right, for two years because of the pandemic and assorted things with printing and all kinds of things. And now things are are finally moving. And I'm so happy about that. And here's another word that adoptees hate, but I am grateful. (laughs) I'm very grateful to be doing this work. And because when you're a writer, it is about being a part of the conversation and sort of adding your next part to the conversation. And you can't do that if your work is not, if you don't have work coming out. I'm, I'm really excited about that. In October, I have a co-authored picture book coming out with John Coy, Sun Young Shin, who is a uh, Korean adoptee, a dear, dear, dear friend of mine, and Diane Wilson. And Diane is Dakota. I, of course, am a mixed Black transracial adoptee, and John Coy is a white guy. The book is called Where We Come From, and we start off in sort of like a cosmic sense. Where do we come from? And, you know, going to sort of like the origins of the universe and then the earth and sort of all the the different organisms that, you know, came to be alive on the earth. And then we very quickly go into our ancestral stories where we come from, where I believe John is Irish, you know, and sort of this Irish American and sort of going into that. Son Young is Korean American and the African American story, the Dakota story, right? I have to say it's been surprisingly beautiful 
to work on this project. Uh, you know, when you do, I mean, this is why I actually really love working on projects with with other folks because you don't know you don't you had you don't know what's going to arise and and how it's going to go. And so I, John, initially asked three women of color if we wanted to do this project with him, and we said, oh yes, yes, but we didn't really know what we were in for, you know? And then as this project has gone, it's just been, I mean, I, I just think there's not a picture book out there like this, certainly not authored by, by four, four different voices uh, from four different sort of ancestral, cultural, racial backgrounds. And then our, our illustrator, DM, D, Dion DM is just phenomenal. So that, that will be coming out from Learner in October then at the beginning of the year, I have a book called Botched. That's the title. The subtitle is A Speculative Memoir of Transracial Adoption. And as I've said many times before, it's probably the weirdest thing that I've I've ever written. But I also feel like it's probably the truest thing that I've ever written about the experience of being a transracial adoptee. Got speculative elements in it. It's got micro essays. It's got photographs of myself, of my adoptive family, of my birth mom. It's got a ton of letters from my birth mom. It's got death certificates. It's got, I mean, it's just, it's got all kinds of things in it. It's got wormholes in it. <laughs> it's, got, it's got everything you could ever want and plenty of things you probably don't. I'm going to read a little bit, a tiny bit from, of, from that at, at the end of our talk together. So that's coming out in January of 2023 from Dutton. Then <laughs> the book, drumroll, that my son has been waiting for for six years. And that's called Sam and the Incredible African and American Food Fight, a picture book coming out from University of Minnesota Press in the spring of 2023. And that is about this little kid named Sam, whose mom is African-American and dad is Liberian. And every night there's all this tension in the household about what kind of food they're going to eat, Liberian food or American food. And he just cannot figure out how to solve this problem until his stomach starts talking to him like this. And so and, uh, Charlie Palmer, who's this wonderful, wonderful painter based in Atlanta, is doing the illustrations for that. So I've got three books coming out in 2023. It's going to be busy. The last book coming out in the fall is called Adoptee to Adoptee. And that is, as far as we know, the first collection of YA stories by adoptees for adoptees. And that is co-edited by Nicole Chung. Harper Teen will bring that out. Yeah, and we've just finished, we're very close to finishing the first round of edits. And I, I just am so excited. I'm so excited for our community to read the brilliance and the, the breadth and the depth of these stories. I think it's, it's just going to be... I mean, kick ass. It's it's going to be amazing. And then I'm working on a, a trilogy. I haven't sold this yet. I'm page like 32, I think. But it's a it, this one I'm writing for my son. It's about a group of BIPOC tweens. So 12-year-olds that take on big oil. And it's got all these magical elements in it. And it's, it's, it's dystopian and so I'm very excited about that because that's my first middle grade thing. And and like I said, I'm having like my son's reading it as I'm right, I'm writing it. So it's he's my beta reader. So he'll tell me, you know, oh, this is this is not funny. It's not why? You know. <laughs> so that that's highly useful for me. So who knows when that will be coming out? Not 2023, thank God. 
but uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's good. I'm busy. I mean, that's what you want. You know, you want to be doing the work that you love, and that's what I'm doing. I'm so excited uh, for your collaborations, all the different genre of writing that you're doing, just including Boise. I mean, including your kids and in, in all that you do. Yeah. I mean, if you're writing a book for tween readers, <laughs> it is most helpful to have a tween beta reader. So that just makes so much sense. I mean, I love that so much. And I feel like with all these different types of books, you know, our community needs middle reader books and picture books and uh, memoir and um, anthologies, all of it. You're feeding us on every level. So again, thank you so much. I want to also, I think, acknowledge that we are so honored right now to be able to share in the space and hear a little piece from your upcoming book from Botched. And it would just be so wonderful to be all ears as you share sections of this book with our audience and with us, because we cannot wait to get our hands on that when it's released. But we also wanted to make space to be able to get a sample and, and get people excited about what's to come. Thank you so much. And I just appreciate too you on making space, you know, like that's not a small thing either. This book is called Botched and the subtitle is A Speculative Memoir of Transracial Adoption. And the basic premise is I did my birth search when I was 19, at which time I found out through my birth mother that my name at birth was Aaron Powers. And so the sort of setup of the book is that there are two major timelines one with Aaron Powers growing up in 1985 with my birth mother and one with Shannon Gibney growing up with my white adoptive family in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1985. And Shannon Gibney, the Shannon Gibney character discovers a wormhole. What kind of both characters do Aaron and Shannon connecting the two t primary timelines? Of course, they, they mess with the wormhole. And the more that they mess with the wormhole, the more things from one timeline that don't belong in the other timeline start coming in and botching the timelines. So this is the prologue. I was born January 30th, 1975 in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The name in my birth certificate is Shannon Gibney, and my parents are listed as Jim and Susan Gibney. These are my white adoptive parents who raised me. They gave me the loafers I remember wearing almost 40 years ago. The backyard wood for my imagination first grew roots was theirs. The woman who gave birth to me and subsequently relinquished me was named Patricia Powers. She was a white working class Irish American woman who had a short relationship with my African American birth father, Boise Collins Jr. My birth mother named me Aaron Powers after I was born, but I didn't find that out until I was 19. I possess no childhood memories of either of them. I grew up with my white adoptive parents in Ann Arbor, Michigan, with two white brothers who were biologically related to my parents. When I was 19 and no longer a child in the eyes of the state, I embarked on a search for my possible birth siblings and my birth parents. I found my birth mother, Patricia Powers, who then still lived in her hometown of Utica, New York. We had a complicated on-again, off-again relationship from the mid-90s until her death from cancer in 2014. She was 58 when she passed. Through my search, I also discovered that my birth father, Boise Collins Jr. died from complications due to injuries he sustained during a high-speed police chase in Palo Alto, California in 1981 when I was six. He was 35 at the time of his death. 
I discovered many other things through my search and reunion experiences. I did not discover many things as well. I now have two living children of my own, Boise and Marwen, and one dead, CNA. This is one way to tell the story in this time, in this place. What follows are other ways to tell the stories of Shannon and Aaron, of the known and the unknown, the truth and speculation, to awaken the sleepers, to call forth the living, the dead, and those residing elsewhere. So that is the prologue. And then I'm just going to read another short, very short section, just a page. So bear with me. There are different micro essays kind of peppered throughout the manuscript. So this is one that's early on. It's called The Tools of Mainstream Literary Fiction. The tools of mainstream literary fiction are inadequate for investigating my questions. You can get to the edges of them, but not inside them. For that, you need a wormhole and multiple timelines, perhaps a doppelganger. For me, these are not manufactured literary devices. They are not lies. And yet, they are absolutely manufactured literary devices. And yes, they are lies. But only insofar as our manufactured birth certificates are lies. And the stories we were told as children by our loving parents about being given up because we were special are lies. Which is the lie? That my white birth mother knew my black father just a little and projected racist fears of predatory black men onto him when she learned I was searching for him before I found out that he had died many years before or that she was trying to protect me? Which is true? That I would have been loved but not cared for as well by my birth mother as by my solidly middle-class adoptive family? That my birth mother was not in a position to be a good mother, quote unquote, to me, as she, quote, did the right thing, unquote, by giving, or that she did the right thing by giving me up, or that there is no right thing when it comes to cleaving the tie between mother and child. What has become of that other me living out the first timeline with my birth mother? How are you, Erin Powers? Who was that girl and who is she now? I've never seen her, and yet I see her every day. Walking my dog, she passes me her hair a little longer, a little frizzier, her eyes downcast. Leaving the grocery store, I see her smoking languidly on the steps, her Doc Martens scarred with red paint and glittery silver laces. She is funny but reticent. She watches but does not reveal. She holds her stories tightly. And like me, she knows that the truth is a slippery thing, that it can float in and out of what we accept as quote-unquote real in an instant. She could step through a wormhole at any minute and she could be me, running a cross-country race at the high school, leaning into my blackness in my 20s, and furiously trying to translate everything into words in my 30s. We could bump into each other on the way to meet our birth father, who neither of us actually met. All of it, all the possible us's exists without explanation, answer, or resolution, just like our stories. Oh my goodness, you just took us on a wormhole and I'm still trying to get back out of it because I just want to hear more. And I just want to thank you so much for giving us just a taste and a flavor of, of what Botched is all about and just how, like you said, it's one of the most honest things you've written in the sense of it being really your your truths, your stories, and just I, I already I can just feel how much that's going to resonate with so many of us in the community. So thank you for sharing that in our podcast today, as you all heard first here on <laughs> the Lightning Podcast. We're so honored to, to hear it from you. Uh, so thank you, Shannon. And 
as we close out today, we ask just kind of a fun question at the end. And that is, what are the other labors of love aside from parenting? And what are you working on as well? Yeah, no, I love to run. Are you running? Are you runner too, Robin? I am. I am. I throw it back to my cross country days. Cross country. Cross country nerds. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. But I love it. You get, you put it all out on the, the trails or wherever it is. Yeah. And it's easy. Like, I mean, that's one thing that I think has kept me going with running is like, it doesn't require a, you know, a lot of stuff. You just throw on your shoes and go. And it just keeps me centered. You know, everyone is like, oh, Shannon, you're so busy. And you're, you know, this and that. And how do you do such and such? You're a single mom. And oh, I have to prioritize myself. (laughs) Like I have to, I mean, I run every day, you know, and I I try to meditate, you know, every day as well. So my Dharma practice is, is also a labor of love for me as well. And my Sangha with that, right. Uh, Spiritual Buddhist spiritual community is huge. I'm really looking forward. I mean, I went out to a ladies night dinner with a friend for the first time in two and a half years And I'm like, oh my God, I've missed this. Like, I'm so looking forward to like the spring and the summer and the fall until, you know, November hits here and it's winter, you know, six months of it, but you know, whatever that's later, but it's like, I'm, I'm so looking forward to just like, I mean, please God or whoever is in charge of COVID bring it back traveling we've got the kids and I have travel planned over the summer too so yeah there's just lots lots of stuff that's a labor of love for me that all sounds so amazing and yeah there's nothing like Minnesota summers or just when the the brown snow is melted and you get to go outside and you know your toes get to feel the fresh air but yeah I I anticipate that that time for you and and how much um, running is part of you taking care of yourself. We need you in this world. So you continue to to run on. Um, But yeah, just thank you so much for your energy, for all of your, your warmth and your depth in our conversation today. We are so, so appreciative. And it's just been so wonderful to be in connection with you. So please, keep writing and may your pen be mightier than the sword and, and <laughs> your work is so essential yeah for us and and our children and the community in the world so we will post links to all of the amazing things that you're doing where folks can find you but we really appreciate your time and your your space today well and thank you both you know an interview can be flat or it can be very very layered and very insightful as well. So it's been a great experience. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing for our community as well. And all of you listening out there, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. And if you are into what you're hearing, please spread the word and invite friends to like us, follow us and share us on Instagram at the labor of love podcast. And if you want to support our podcast, you can Venmo us at labor of love podcast. Thank you for tuning in.